Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Reverend Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and here is today's episode of Bible Bites as we continue reading through the scriptures this year. This is episode 319, and my reading for today is found in Acts 7 and 8. And I want to talk about these passages. Seven is very, very long, but it is a worthy chapter to read. And so I'm going to pick out a few highlights from seven and eight to cover today. Now, we were introduced to Stephen. We saw his ministry. We saw that he had been appointed as a deacon. We saw him working for the Lord. And so they seize him and they set up this false counsel with false witnesses against him and all of that. So now then they open a door for Stephen. (laughs) Then the high priest said, are these things so? So now Stephen has an open door and here he goes. And his sermon is found in verses 2 through 53. It is a very powerful sermon. What he does is he gives them a fabulous history of Israel that they knew very well all through the Old Testament scriptures since Abraham, and he actually begins in the latter part of Genesis 11, where we're introduced to who Abraham is. Stephen was a deacon, which was a servant. He wasn't one of the elders, and yet he knew the word. He quoted it at times because he didn't have a Bible in front of him. He didn't have a Torah scroll. They had him on the ground. They had him in a council where he was being charged with a murderous, I mean, with a, with a crime, a capital crime, one that could get him murdered in their eyes. And yet he knew the word. He was quoting it and he understood it and he knew how to apply it. That's something that every Christian should be learning today. And I encourage you to be doing that. So he's boldly expounding on it. And now um, he he lists for them all of this whole history. And I want to read a few passages from this for you. First of all, I want to go to verse 25. He's talking about their history. And in verse 25, he speaks, he's speaking in this passage about Moses. And he said, For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. So in other words, Moses tries to preempt God's timing. He thinks, God's called me to be a deliverer. He knows that from the time he's been you know, raised up. He was nursed by his own mother for, um, for the first, you know, who knows, five to seven years, perhaps. They weaned him at, at an older age, anywhere from three to seven, I've, I've learned in my research. So, Jochebed had given him a secure foundation in the Word of God, in the knowledge of God, before he was ever uh, reared entirely in the Egyptian schools and through Pharaoh's daughter. And so he had that connection. He had that foundation. And he knew in his heart that he was supposed to be the deliverer, the deliverer, even this early in his life. And so he's 40 years old and he thinks, well, God's called me. You know, you, you Hebrews, I came to deliver you. I saved you from the Egyptian yesterday, killed him on your behalf. You should be receiving me. He thought that they would just welcome him with open arms. And he didn't understand God's timing. 
So he ends up, you know, one of them says, well, you're going to kill me like you did the Egyptian. And when he gets found out like that, he gets scared and he runs off into the land of Midian and he's there for 40 years. Now, that was not a wasted time at all. As a matter of fact, it was precious training ground for him. Because while he was in Midian, he became a shepherd. He was learning to take care of flocks. <coughs> Excuse me. He was learning to take care of these sheep, to lead them, to care for them, to bring them to water, to watch over them, to help them when they were sick or wounded to provide the shelter for them at night to lead them to true rest. All of that, every bit of that, was preparing him to rise up 40 years later. During this 40-year time period, he was in training ground. And when he rose up at 80 years old and went back, when God called him at the burning bush, which um, Stephen identifies here as well, he goes back and then he becomes the deliverer in God's timing and he becomes the shepherd to God's people all the way through the wilderness wanderings. Moses had to shepherd them, had to lead them as a flock, God's flock, just like he had done for those 40 years in the land of Midian. It was training time. God trains us in many ways and in many times. And sometimes we look back and we think it may be wasted time, but it's not at all. God has a way of taking everything and weaving it together into a beautiful tapestry of our life to bring him glory. Just like he talks about all things working together for our good. He's weaving it. He's the author of our story. He knows what he's doing and he doesn't waste any time. Praise be to God. So, <clears throat> Then I wanted to just point out in verse 32, he speaks about Moses seeing the glory of the Lord in that bush and how the voice of God speaks to him. And he calls out and says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And notice this, Jesus refers to this in Mark chapter 12, verse 26 and 27, and it was quoted from Exodus 3, 6 and 15. But when Jesus quoted it and spoke about it, he was talking about how he's the God of the living, not the dead. So this is, Stephen is picking up on that as well from his Lord Jesus Christ. He is laying the foundation in verse 20. All the way through 36, he's laying the foundation for them <clears throat> to understand. This is the whole backstory because they revered Moses and still do to this day. And Moses was a very important godly man and had a high place in scripture and a high calling. And so he's picking up on what he knows they already know, believe, and, and would teach and so forth and agree with. But he's laying the foundation for um, his prophetic example and, and interpretation and how he, they need to now connect that to the gospel of Jesus, which can set them free. So next he goes in verse 37. 
and he brings, he connects the two. This is what Moses, this is that Moses, this is that same Moses. He spent all of these verses securing in their mind that he knows the Moses he's talking about. Same Moses that they revere. And he says in verse 37, this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. So now he's made the connection between their history and Abraham and Moses and now to Jesus. And here he goes. And then he says, he goes on down and he is speaking uh, from that promised one reference. He goes on down in verse um, in verse 42, but before we get there, he takes them through the wilderness wanderings, talks to them about how they've backslidden, how they have a history of idolatry and falling away from the Lord, and they need salvation. In other words, he's building his case that they're in need of this Savior that God promised. They need, they are guilty sinners just like everybody else, and they need this Savior. And so he goes on and he's talking about how in verse 42, <clears throat> these, <clears throat> the book of the prophets was the book of the 12, meaning the 12, what we call minor prophets. And he quotes specifically from uh, Amos here. And then he goes on <clears throat> and he talks about how there was, there was witness to that and how because of their sins, they ended up going to Babylon and, you know, they suffered and, and that kind of thing. He talks about how they, they God fought with them, <clears throat> drove out from before them their enemies until the days of David, who found favor before God, and then Solomon built his house. But then he goes on and he talks about how ever <clears throat> the Most High does not dwell in uh, temples made with hands. He talks about this scripture from Isaiah 66 meaning that buildings do not contain God. That was never God's intent. His intent when he told Moses to build the tabernacle was so that he could dwell among them in a tangible but yet mobile place, in a place that would be able to allow him to live with them, where, he, where the people could come to to honor God. Yet the building itself will not contain the Lord. And so he's talking about that. Now, they're with him. They're okay until it gets to about 51. And then it changes because in 51, he begins to call them out directly. Listen to this. You stiff-necked and, <clears throat> stiff and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. So now he is by the Spirit of God telling them the truth about their own condition before God in an effort to bring them to the Lord. So notice verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. In other words, the Spirit of God did convict them. 
But notice what they did. They gnashed at him with their teeth. In other words, they were not going to have it. They were angry at Philip for revealing and exposing the truth about them. But notice Philip, it says, but he, meaning, I mean, Stephen, this, I'm sorry, it's not Philip, it's Stephen, excuse me. But he, meaning Stephen, Stephen is the one here, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Now notice here, this really reveals that they were not going to have any of that. They were not going to believe. They refused it. Because it says, Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. Now I want to make two points here. First of all, to stop up your ear is to literally close it. You do not want to hear it, and you are refusing to hear it. I'm not... I'll never forget, years ago, one of my grandchildren was little <coughs> at the time, and I had had to get on to him about something, and that little boy, I remember, <laughs> precious little boy, he ran over into a chair and stuck his hands right over his ears, and he had this pouty, you know, mad look on his face or whatever, but he put his hands over his ears because he was not wanting to hear what his nanny was telling him. And that's the picture of what's happening here. It's like, nope, we refuse it. I don't care if it's truth or not. I don't care if it's good for us or not. I don't care if it would save us or not. We refuse it because we will not believe in the Jesus you are proclaiming and the Jesus you are speaking. Second thing I want you to notice here is that these religious folk were in unity, but they were in a bad unity. It said they ran at Stephen with one accord. In other words, there can be a bad unity. We talk a lot about wanting unity today, unity in the church, unity among believers, whatever. And that's a good thing as long as we define it correctly. Paul said in another place that we will read soon that we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. And we must make that distinction. Because the Bible has, this is one account, Genesis 11 is another account of bad unity. Just because there's unity does not mean it's for the right causes. You can be united and still be outside the will of God. And so we need to endeavor to keep the unity of the Holy Spirit of God. Notice that there was a man there that the people laid down their clothes to at the feet. And he was a young man at this time. His name was Saul. And so they stoned Stephen to death. Now I want you to see this. They, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Verse 60. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And we had said this. He fell asleep or he died then. He had no more breath in him. Because of that prayer, I believe others were saved as well. But the Bible gives us the account of one that may have come to know Jesus because of Stephen's prayer. Even in his own execution, when he was stoned wrongfully 
for the cause of Jesus Christ's sake. And he became the official first martyr of the church. He cries out just like Jesus cried out on the cross when Jesus was wrongly killed. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they, they do. Stephen is repeating his Lord's ex, um, execution or his Lord's last words, his Lord's um, final breath, and says, Lord, do not charge them with this sin, the same one that Jesus cried out on his own execution day. And we'll see later where that resonated and God has Saul. We, we will read about that in tomorrow's lesson. We notice in chapter 8 that Saul was consenting to Stephen's death. So we begin to hear about Saul. He was a persecutor of the church. It says in verse 3 of chapter 8, He made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So he was very much involved in the early persecution of the church. So notice this, that all of this ended up resulting in scattering the church abroad, which is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen and needed to happen. Because when they went abroad to these other places, they took the gospel with them and they began to preach. And so the rest of this chapter is primarily telling us about Philip. We've not heard a whole lot about Philip in the scriptures up to this point. Um, we do know that he was the one that at the Last Supper or the final Passover Seder of the Lord that asked him, you know, well, uh, Lord, would you show us the Father and we'll, it'll be sufficient for us. And so Jesus answers him there. And obviously now Philip has seen the Lord, seen, seen the Father. He understands now that Jesus is the exact replica of the Father. He's been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And now he's out working for the Lord. And we see him operating in the gift of being an evangelist here in the rest of this chapter. So he goes to Samaria, preaches Christ to them. There's lots of powerful works that, be, that are being done, miraculous works and so forth. And we read about the encounter of a certain man named Simon. He's called Simon the Sorcerer. And he kind of jumps in on the bandwagon and jumps into this thing, but his heart is not right before the Lord. And the Lord knew that. Now, Philip couldn't see that, but the Lord knew it. He had an impure motive and an insincere faith. And so Philip continues on operating and, you know, has, uh, has kind of welcomed him into the church that was growing there and so forth. And Philip has the same power and anointing is Jesus through the works of the Holy Spirit. Now, did Philip maybe lack some discernment here about Simon? I don't know. I don't know if he did or not. But we do know that Peter and John hear about all the Samaritans getting saved, and so they send a delegation um, that from the Jerusalem church, sends a delegation of Peter and John up there to testify of these things, to come and you know, help them establish righteously their church and so forth and be sound. And so Peter encounters this Simon because this Simon sees that Peter and John lay hands on the people and they receive the Holy Spirit. They had not yet done that. And so Simon sees this and he wants, he wants to buy it. He, he offers them money. 
saying in verse 19, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter immediately rebukes him by word of knowledge from the Spirit of God. Peter says to him in verse 20, Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. So first of all, let's look at this. Peter is establishing here in a stern rebuke to this man that God's power and the power of the Holy Spirit and the operation of the Holy Spirit is not a toy. It's not magic. It's not for sale. It's not for amusement. And it's not for anyone else to choose and to have a, a will and command of it except God through the Holy Spirit of God. He is the only one. God is the only one that operates and that controls the operation of the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is not for sale, nor is it to be used as amusement, nor is it up to an individual to decide, I want this to happen and I want that to happen. No, it's God and God alone. So there's a holiness and a reverence that Peter establishes right away when he speaks about that. Then he gets to the heart of Simon's problem. He says, you've neither part nor parcel in this matter because your heart is not right in the sight of God. He gives him the offer. He says, repent, therefore, of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Notice this. This is where the word of knowledge comes in. Peter says to him, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. The Spirit of the Lord revealed that to Peter, and Peter tells him that. The root of his problem is that he has allowed a root of bitterness, which Hebrews tells us will defile everything. It's like a poison. It's like a cancer, and it's going to defile everything in life if you have that. And then he said, you're bound by iniquity. And so he has that word of knowledge, but he gives him the opportunity to come and repent to the Lord because the Lord can set him free. Now we hear um, Simon's answer. He, he tells Peter, he says, well, you pray to the Lord. Pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. Now we don't hear from him anymore. So we don't know if this was a sincere, repentant cry or if this was him like, well, you pray for me. I, I'm really not wanting to repent or whatever. I don't know. I don't know which it is. We don't hear from him anymore. But Peter has established a few things here that are very important for us to learn. And one of those is that the gift of God is not for sale. It is not for use. It is God's and it is up to him when he chooses to do any miraculous work and when he doesn't. And that bitterness will poison us and iniquity will bind us in bondage. And God wants us to be free. Praise be to the Lord. So next we see the rest of this chapter dealing with us in, in another episode of Philip being an evangelist. So after the Samaritans, much many of them are getting saved and this church is being established there and growing. Then we come to verse 26 of chapter 8. And the Spirit of the Lord tells Philip to go down toward the south along the road which goes between Jerusalem and Gaza. The, that desert area there. So he goes. He doesn't know why. He just knows that the Lord told him to go. So he arises and he comes upon a chariot 
where a man is sitting in it. Now, this is an Ethiopian eunuch. We don't know his name. We're not told his name. But he is serving Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. He is has great authority, is in charge of the treasury, which meant that he had to be a man of integrity and trustworthiness because he had the purse, basically. And apparently was a Jewish pilgrim or perhaps a proselytized Gentile pilgrim. It says that he was returning from Jerusalem after he had worshipped there. So probably this means it was at the time, feast times, after one of the three required pilgrimage feasts of the Jewish people. Now, I want to point out a couple of passages from the Old Testament. First of all, Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 5, speak about believing eunuchs, that God will welcome and receive them, giving them salvation and life also. And the second place is in Jeremiah chapter 38, verse 7 through 13. In that passage, we read about a, an, an Ethiopian eunuch in that passage many hundreds of years before this one, but his name is given to us, and he was called Ebed-Melech. He was an Old Testament Ethiopian eunuch who rescued Jeremiah from the dungeon of death. Now, we don't know if there was any bloodline connection or anything like that, but I do know this, that God has a good memory. And somehow, maybe, because that was an Ethiopian eunuch, I just find it strange that now we have the Spirit of the Lord going to one man. He moved Philip from Samaria to go minister to one man, and that was an Ethiopian eunuch. It could be connected to what the Ebed-Melech, uh, Ebed the Ethiopian eunuch, did that was good to save Jeremiah's life. It could be that God is repaying that kindness from way back hundreds of years before that. I just have to believe there has to be some connection for this um, in the scriptures. It's not by accident. So God sends Philip down there for this one man. And we find out that this man is reading the word of God. Guess what? We should be reading the word of God, searching for truth. And notice this, God finds him there. God meets him there. So Philip asks him a question. He says, do you understand what you're reading? Good question. And so this man says, well, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And beloved, people that are seeking truth today need those of us. They need someone to expound to them the Holy Scriptures so they will understand it. So notice this, he, uh, Philip tells him, uh, he, he says, Philip, no, I'm sorry, Philip comes up and sits with him, and he finds out where he's reading. Well, the guy was reading in Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. And so he asks Philip, he says, is he talking about himself? Is Isaiah talking about himself? Or is he speaking of another person? Now, I want you to notice this because this is a powerful principle of evangelism. We need to understand this. This teaches us something about evangelism. Verse 35, 
Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. The principle of evangelism that I see there is that when we are trying to witness for the Lord and we're dealing with a person, we need to start where they are. Meet them right where they are. This eunuch was reading in Isaiah 53, which is, for a Jewish person, one of the most misunderstood and, and often even ignored and skipped over passages because they can't seem to figure it out. And yet it's very clear when you understand the Gospels, it's very clear that it was prophetic about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Philip knows this, he understands the connection, and he begins right there exactly where that eunuch was. And he preaches Jesus. He shows him in that passage how it's Jesus. And maybe he takes him through the whole of the Old Testament. Maybe he takes him then to Psalm 22 or to other places. Or what, you know, maybe he takes him to other passages in Isaiah. Talks about the virgin shall conceive and bear the son. Maybe he shows him some of these other passages. And he leads this eunuch to Jesus Christ. And so they travel together, and as they go down the road, there's some water there. And so the eunuch says, well, here's water. Can I be baptized? Basically is what he says. And Philip tells him in verse 37, if you believe with all your heart, yes, you may. And that's still true today. When, we, when someone believes in Jesus, one of the next things that they need to try to do is to be baptized. It is a... Um, practice of Christianity and one of the ordinances that is a public example and a public testimony. And not only that, it's not just for a public testimony, but it's also something real that happens in that. Inside the person, it's, it's a way to, um, to show physically like a visual for actually what you're experiencing in Christ, going under the water, coming back up as a brand new person, being cleansed by that. And so this, this eunuch says, so he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So Philip baptizes him, and then Philip is removed from there. God did all of this for one man, and he'll do the same for you today. Believe in Jesus. Let this be your declaration. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And if you truly say that and you truly mean it in your heart, deep within you, then God will save you and give you a brand new life, make you a brand new person, write your name in the Lamb's Book of Life, and you will know Him as His child and enter his family in a beautiful relationship with him. I invite you to do that today. I pray this has been a blessing to you, and Lord willing, you can join us again for future episodes of Bible Bites. God bless you today. In Jesus' name.